From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Modern imaging technology allows physicians to gather information from a variety of different modalities. From ultrasounds to CT scans and MRIs, radiologists examine many different characteristics of tissues, cancers, and more. The only disadvantage to having all of this information is the struggle to efficiently consolidate it all. Combining his background in computer science and image processing, Dr. Nobuhiko Hata of Brigham and Women's Hospital utilizes image fusion to create digital maps of the brain or other parts of the body. Dr. Nobuhiko Hata is a professor of radiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Hata, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you're a scientist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Could you describe your background for us? Yes, I came here as a graduate student specialized in medical image processing. Mm -hmm. My expertise was mostly around computer science for image processing, and that I apply computer science uh, technologies to improve the the visualization, presentation of uh, radiology images. Then later, I changed my uh, research topics a little bit to include robotics and then devices. Cool. And so, you, like you said, you're focused on um, computer science and image technology. Um, and one technology that you work with is called image fusion. Could you tell us about image fusion? Right. Image fusion is a technology to um, integrate or uh, merge uh, or combine images from different times or different scanners, different modalities. Uh, For instance, uh, one patient may receive uh, a a diagnostic imaging uh, by MRI. That's one way to see, look inside the body. But often the same patient may undergo a CT scan, CAT scan, for other purposes. The problem is that the radiologist cannot see them at the same time. Each one of them has different information, different useful information, but they can't see it at the same time. So there is an image processing technology to fuse or morph one images to another so that you can actually enjoy both uh, benefit of imaging. So that's image fusion. Okay, so could you give us an example of where um, an application where that might be used? Right. The most recent exciting application we are dealing with is the uh, prostate MRI. The MRIs are uh, nowadays uh, uh, taken by variety of uh, MRI methods, each one of them uh, presenting uh, different characteristics of the tissues, uh, for instance, for the cancers or uh, other, anything specific uh, to to the cancer biology. Uh, Image fusion is a way for them to present all these different kind of data set at the same time. One image may be useful to see how much the uh, density of the tissue is. 
one image may be useful to see how much waters or, or blood flows are coming to one particular uh, part of the, uh, the prostate. By image fusion, you can show them at the same time. Otherwise, you have to look left for one information, right for another information. And uh, you have to keep moving your neck, like, like a, a swipe of your neck back on a force until you can actually mentally fuse them. Being able to see those two images on top of each other, the same tissue, what is the advantage? What does that allow you to do in the clinic or as a researcher? Absolutely. So you can extract uh, physiology or um, any uh, biological phenomena out of the imaging. But as you, as you can remember how image looks like, it's basically a map. So the, not only you can see the uh, impacts of uh, uh, the treatments uh, or the uh, behavior of the tissues in the images. Images also tell you where it is happening. Without correct digital fusion of these different images, you ended up having multiple information cognitively sort of a registered and fused in your brain, but you can't really fuse the locations. So the image fusion will allow you to precisely outline or delineate those activities digitally and precisely. And this is a technology that you developed? Uh, many researchers in this field were working on variety of different image fusion methods. Uh, one of our um, pioneering uh, scientists in this field, Sandy Wells, uh, in our research group, uh, who was also my mentor uh, for my research, invented the very nice, uh, easy-to-use method uh, called uh, intensity-based registration that does not require any uh, um, uh, human in, uh, intervention or any, uh, you don't need to have a person uh, uh, pulling one image to another and then until you can eyeball the registration. Uh, he invented a method called image fusion by intensity uh, so that the computer can do this automatically without us being involved. Mm, okay, great. Then I use the technology for uh, the particular research topic I was assigned to. So um, let's go back a little bit when you first came to Brigham and Women's Hospital in 1995. Um, could you talk about some of your first and your early research projects back then? Yes. So I'd like to sit back a little bit and talk about 1994 before mm -hmm. 1995. So I was a graduate student in Japan. I was interested in coming to this country to do a research because my mother was also here for the college. She, she has been telling me how great the uh, science you know, and, and technology uh, research in USSR. are. So I was looking for an opportunity. I visited multiple places, uh, Philadelphia, uh, North Carolina, uh, New York, everywhere. And then Boston was a final destination. The reason I came to Boston was to attend a meeting called Interventional MRI Workshop, which I had no idea what it was all about. And I, to be honest with you, even at, in the, uh, at the half point of the meeting, I couldn't really grasp what the people were talking about. Of course, I was a graduate student. I was new to this field. I didn't even hear about the intervention MRI. Mm -hmm. After the meeting, this person, Dr. Sandy Wells, uh, took me to a, uh, uh, a Brigham Women's Hospital and, uh, and escorted me uh, to the, uh, the, uh, the imaging suite under construction. There, I came across amazing machine called Open Configuration MRI. Open configuration it's MRI? It's an open okay. MRI. Yeah, yeah. MRI 
if you have been to the radiology clinic, is basically a big tube. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, one uh, pioneering and also um, very innovative uh, researcher who be- later became my uh, uh, mentor, Dr. Phalangelas, realized if you split this tube MRI, big machine, into two pieces and make an opening in the middle, you can actually have surgeon standing there, sitting there, operating on the patient in the MRI scanner. Mm. Isn't that a crazy idea? Mm. Yes, it was crazy. So, but he was crazier maybe. <laughs> he actually convinced General Electric GE to make ones. <laughs> and then as a matter of fact, the install, first installation, of course he invented it, was in Brigham and Women's Hospital. Mm-hmm. So I was very fortunate to came across that machine under construction and as soon as I saw the machine, I said, I'm coming to Boston. Okay. And so at that point, you had been studying computer science, correct? And had you thought that you would use computer science in medical imaging at all? Yes. Um, so I, in, in Japan, I was assigned to do image fusion of uh, MRI to ultrasound. Okay. I have to uh, mention one thing. I mentioned something about image fusion in the context of uh, uh, fusing two different kind of images. But there's another concept to do image fusion of the images taken at the different time point. Right. In my particular project, it was an image taken before the surgery, that was MRI, during the surgery, that was ultrasound. So I was given a task to do an image fusion of these two data sets. So the idea was that the MRI has more information but you can only do MRI before the surgery because back then people didn't think you can do an MRI during the surgery. So we worked very hard to fuse ultrasound to MRI because ultrasound was the only imaging modality to be taken during the surgery. Dr. Gilles was no the problem. So he actually invented a machine that I can do both imaging of the MRI before the surgery and during the surgery. Okay. That's why this machine was phenomenal. Wow. And so um, so from that visit, you went back to Japan, and then you decided you wanted to come here. And um, is that when you started working with Frank Gilles? Yes. Okay. So that was 1994. I saw the machine for the mm-hmm. first time. I came here in 1995. That was about the time Dr. Gilles and his colleagues at the Brigham Women's Hospital started to do the first MRI-guided surgeries at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And so, what kind of procedures were they doing? The first he studied was in neurosurgery, mm-hmm. but also he expanded application from neurosurgery to other procedures that involves liver, kidney, uh, even the uh, ENT, ear, nose, throat, uh, or spine, a variety of cases. But the, the very first applications were on in, in neurosurgery. Mm. I want to talk about, or maybe ask you about how your mentor, Dr. Gilles, um, connected you with people at the Brigham and helped you advance your career and your research. I know that one way that he did that was he connected you with somebody who was doing prostate surgery, um, and they were having um, sort of an issue with their biopsies. Could you tell us about that? Of course. I continued to apply image fusion uh, first in your surgery. My project, again, was to fuse MRI images taken before and in, onto the images taken during the surgery. 
that concept has been uh, found to be very useful. In fact, uh, I was very busy uh, being in the um, this special operation place uh, to as a scientist uh, to apply my technology uh, to the neurosurgeries. Um, after a while, Dr. Jules uh, uh, invited uh, Dr. Claire Tempani. Uh, now she's leading the our research center uh, after Dr. Jules passed away, uh, and then basically Dr. Jules said, uh, "Nobi, what's being what you have been doing with neurosurgeons is amazing." Uh, but I think you can apply the same technology for the prostate. It turned out that Dr. Tempani was an expert, is an expert in prostate MRI, and then she has been seeing, she had been seeing uh, the uh, prostate cancers were other, another physiological phenomena of the prostate in MRI very well. It was a dawn of the MRI. It was a time, about the time people started to realize the importance of the MRI. She said, well, I can see cancer's MRI. If you help me to get the tissue out of that area, uh, I can give you a better uh, diagnosis for the patient uh, who was undergoing the similar biopsy, but it's more like a blindly uh, uh, under ultrasound guidance. So that okay. was the beginning of my uh, encounter and a collaboration, very long, fruitful collaboration with Dr. Tempani. And so she was using ultrasound to guide the biopsies and it, it wasn't that effective is that right? I don't think she was using ultrasound oh, herself, but okay. the whole field was using ultrasound as an, a guiding tool for the needle, but they were not necessarily uh, using uh, MRIs or any targeting approach uh, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, take the sample. Somebody told me, I don't know if that's true or not, the prostate was the last solid organ where tissues for the cancer suspicion was taken blindly mm. without even aiming at the cancer but rather taking the sample across the prostate, hoping mm -hmm. that the, you will get the tissue uh, that actually tells how aggressive your cancers are. So there's a lot of uh, implication for the patient. Right. So imagine um, if you are the pa a patient, man, um, uh, told by your uh, home doctors or uh, specialists that you have a likelihood of a prostate cancer because of the uh, blood test. Now, there are um, ushered into the uh, area that they can take the sample out of the uh, uh, their prostate under, under ultrasound guidance. And then outcome says, you don't have cancer. Right. How do you feel about it? So that these gentlemen basically uh, start to wonder, is that really true? Mm -hmm. And if you look up the internet and find, well, sometimes you don't get the cancer's tissue because you perform the cancer blindly. So not only you will not provide an accurate diagnosis to the patient, but also the patient who received the, uh, uh, the, the diagnostic outcome will continue to worry about the accuracy of the diagnosis. So there's a lot of implication around it for the patient. Mm -hmm. So now um, is MRI sort of the gold standard in guiding the prostate biopsies? Yes, it has been getting attention. Mm -hmm. There are many articles uh, telling mm -hmm. that uh, doing uh, uh, using MRI uh, as a targeted uh, map uh, for biopsy uh, is useful and then uh, provide more accurate information. Mm -hmm. uh, it is also interesting that the uh, MRI-guided procedure uh, biopsy was uh, was later became uh, be, later became or adopted to 
MRI ultrasound fusion biopsies. Hmm. So it's, it's basically, you know, the, the history is going backwards. We started <laughs> with an image fusion of MRI to the ultrasound. We came to MRI to MRI, and we proved prove that the MRI can be used to guide a biopsy of the prostate. But when it comes down to uh, prevailing this technology to the clinic elsewhere, people start to use ultrasound, which is more convenient imaging tools for the urologist. So they're using image fusion to use MRI with ultrasound. Mm, here see. comes image fusion again. <laughs> right. So because ultrasound is more convenient to use during the procedure, they they take an MRI first, then fuse it with the ultrasound that they take in the procedure. Absolutely. Okay. So image fusion turned out to be a very versatile tool uh, for the, anybody to have an access to the high quality images. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I'm glad that the uh, folks uh, who's been very, very uh, actively working on this field has proven uh, by uh, collaborative effort. So has prostate biopsy improved since Indeed. Then? So this is one of the most exciting advancement. Uh, many articles now supports that the image fusion allows the uh, image fusion allows the access to the high quality MRI data. Now people can start to say now, prostate is also an organ with a targeted biopsy. Mm-hmm. The concept uh, of the image fusion was a basis to uh, fuse images, mm-hmm. but uh, what about actions? How do you get there? Let me use the uh, your GPS car navigation as an uh, example um, uh, analogy. So if you have a map uh, in the car, but if you somehow receive uh, traffic congestions or uh, traffic pattern uh, overlaid onto the map, that is equivalent to taking a, uh, MRI images, but fuse interoperative images or interoperative uh, ultrasound to update your images. Mm-hmm. So that's the uh, high quality uh, map uh, for the surgery. Okay. Later, I was involved in the project to make navigation, during the navigation, uh, to guide the surgeon to operate using this map. For instance, uh, neural navigation is a method to guide the neurosurgeon to uh, uh, reach the target uh, by uh, taking a most appropriate and safe approach to the, to the cancer. Hmm. Uh, there, they use URI, GPS. The GPS is a, a tool, just like in a car, to tell where you are in the map. Mm-hmm. So I was very fortunate to be involved in the project with Dr. Peel Black, Dr. Alexander Gobi to make navigation uh, uh, to use this uh, map for actions. Mm, okay. So, and you're talking about neurosurgery. So, a uh, neurosurgeon spots a tumor in the brain, and they need a map to know how to get there by doing the least amount of damage. Right. So, how does? Um, could you explain how? Um, how exactly you, you accomplish that? Right. So first, you still see, you see have to have a map. So you come to the operating room with a GPS map. Uh, and that's the MRI. That is correct. Right. And then if you start driving or op- start operating the surgery, you pick up uh, uh, what's called surgical wand or mm-hmm. surgical pointer. Uh, that is uh, somehow, I'll explain later, uh, tracked by uh, satellites. Is I it keep, satellites? I like actually in keep space? using analogy. I'm sorry. It's okay. not a satellite. It's equivalent of a satellite. It's but a, it's in the it's in the operating. That room. is correct. Okay. We they have an uh, optical tracking sensor. Okay. Again, that is equivalent of the satellite. Got uh, yeah. That got uh, two to three 
infrared camera mm. uh, looking mm -hmm. at the two that also comes with a uh, reflection devices, reflective uh, material yeah. to the infrared. Okay. And this allows you to tell where this you know, surgical ones are looking at or pointing mm -hmm. at. So in particular, the new surgeon will pick up this band, uh, place this over um, uh, the brain or skull or uh, wherever you are in the during the surgery, and it will tell you the navigation system will tell you exactly where you are in the map. Hmm. My contribution was to use interoperative MRI for this navigation. Wow! And that was, I believe, one of the first work in this field. And when um, when did you publish that work? That was um, I don't remember the exact year, mm -hmm. but 1996, seven, eight. Okay, so that was an early project. Too. It was an early project. You were busy from 1995 to 2000. I was. I was so fortunate to be involved in the first uh, procedures that involve uh, brain laser ablation, uh, of course, prostate intervention. Uh, but we are very, very, we were very smart to translate one technology to another without hesitation. As soon mm. as we found that existing technology can be an enabling technology for the new procedure. That is when this concept of uh, uh, multidisciplinary research, uh, uh, multidisciplinary meaning that not only physician and then scientists work together, but a physician with multi different background work together so that we can share to, uh, or trans continue to translate uh, the established technology among others. Mm -hmm. So that's a very exciting time for image guided therapy program in, in Brigham Women's Hospital. And mm -hmm. that we still keep continuing to do this. Yeah. So, um what year did you start working on robotic surgery? I think it was 2001 or 2002 mm -hmm. when I first submit my proposal to robotic surgery uh, to Whitaker Foundation, which back then was you know, considered to be one of the first uh, um, uh, foundation uh, grant, grant from the research foundation uh, for junior investigator. So mm -hmm. I was very fortunate uh, to get a, a uh, guidance uh, by Dr. Claire Tempani to submit this proposal, and it was accepted. And what was the inspiration behind that? The inspiration behind it is, was this emerging concept that a, the robot can be used for surgery. Mm -hmm. The concept was emerging. It was about a time uh, now very popular Da Vinci uh, surgical robot was about to be used, and clearly that was helping uh, surgeons and physicians to do uh, surgery. So there's a less and less, there was less and less uh, resistance or hesitation to mm -hmm. use robotics in the surgery. Mm -hmm. Then they realized, well, we can do a better job by using robots uh, to place the uh, biopsy needle if you use the uh, robotic technology. Are we talking mainly about biopsy then with the robotic procedures? I have been involved in mostly needle placement, in mm -hmm. other words, more uh, specifically uh, percutaneous needle placement. Right. Um, I have been involved also in the research with Dr. Kemal Tankali to place ablation proof uh, to the uh, uh, abdominal organs. So this is the uh, part of the uh, procedure or surgical alternative to uh, ablate the cancer uh, minimally invasively mm -hmm. by placing uh, uh, the uh, uh, microwave or uh, cryo or uh, other form of uh, 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 tissue destruction mechanism, mm -hmm. but with uh, using a very fine needle. Mm -hmm. So I was helping him to place this very finely uh, using robotic devices. Mm. This is a joint project with the industry. Mm. Okay. And um, 
You mentioned earlier talking about the early days of robotic surgery and the da Vinci and people seeing that it was effective and um, sort of some of the resistance going away. Have you encountered resistance um, since then in the work that you've done with robotic surgery? Well, the resistance starting from my first presentation and response to my presentation about robotic needle placement back in 1994 mm. has been decreased phenomenally. In mm -hmm. fact, in my first presentation about the needle placement robot back in 1994 uh, was followed by one gentleman who was very furious about the idea of robots in my office. <laughs> So I got the resistance from them saying, there's no way robot can be any part of my procedure. I can do better. But somehow over the years, with a collective effort of my colleagues uh, from the similar background, I think we have been proven that it is good for the physician, good for the patient. So nowadays, I don't see less resistance. Uh, I, I see less resistance in this yeah. field. So how is, it, how is it good for the patient and the surgeon? I think... Um, whenever a new technology comes out, the concern is obviously patient safety and is it better than the current standard? So maybe you could talk about what the advantages are of these new types of procedures. Well, there are many kinds of robots and many kinds of applications. And for each application, there is a benefit of using robotic devices. So uh, I can give you an example. Um, we have found that our percutaneous device can place the needle more accurately. In other words, uh, we can also get the higher quality tissue out of the prostate. Therefore, we can provide higher quality diagnosis outcome. So imagine the story of the gentleman I just you know, made up. Um, mm -hmm. So he was very concerned about the accuracy of diagnosis, but now we can prove that at the, yes, the, the, the tissue I get we get is the highest possible tissue uh, uh, we can collect. Therefore, the diagnosis we're giving you is most likely true. Other procedures, for instance, knee surgery uses uh, uh, robotic devices cut the bones. Uh, this is part of the knee replacement surgery where you implant a specific artificial um, joint. Uh, their accuracy and smoothness of the bone cutting is very important. So the company called Macrosurgical uh, came up with a robotic needle cutter that actually do a better job. And I don't exactly remember what the documentation tells about the benefit, but I can clearly tell at least it will minimize operating time. It also makes the placement of the robotic, uh, uh, sorry, the artificial knee joint uh, better. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many other stories, but each one of these applications has a different benefit. Where do you see the field of robotic surgery going? Well, I think researchers are exploring the translating this autonomous car driving into the surgery, particularly surgical robot. A researcher from... Uh, um, now at the University of Maryland, uh, Alex Klieger invented a, a way to suture uh, the knee, a suture uh, using robotic devices, but autom autonom autonomously. So mm -hmm. that's uh, one of the very first study in this field, and people got very excited about it. Mm -hmm. um, we are also looking into the way to advance snake-like uh, uh, robots in a very autonomous way. Uh, there are many couple of companies now working on this snake robot or snake. Uh, um, like a catheter that actually advances into the lung and lung airways. Therefore, you can uh, reach much uh, smaller uh, um, bronchi and hence the much deeper uh, into the, uh, the lung so that you can collect the cancer. Now, what if you use autonomous robotic technology? Maybe you will be less 
uh, fatigued after the procedure uh, advancing these snake robots. So there's a lot of opportunity to make physicians' life better. And then, of course, make the uh, patient's uh, uh, health service, uh, healthcare uh, to the patient better. So uh, like a really a tiny snake that can get into your lung and detect cancer or remove cancer? Well, yes. So there are many efforts going on. We are one of the... Uh, couple of uh, teams working on this technology. Hmm. Uh, but the snake robot uh, is literally like a snake. Our, our own uh, invention includes the uh, a snake robot to behave like a snake. So if you think about how snake advances uh, forward, they actually use what's called follow the leader motion. So the first, the very uh, uh, the head part of the snake uh, turn right, and the next section turns right afterwards, and mm. the next section turns right afterwards. And I can continue to do this. I was always amazed to see how that works. But I, imagine you can use it into the uh, your device going to small, like a torturous path, and that will really make the, uh, the uh, uh, procedure faster, safer, most likely better uh, than the conventional method. So mm. I'm very excited about the new uh, snake project I'm working on. Mm, great. Um, are there any other research projects that you're working on now that you are excited about? Well, so snake robot is, for me, is tether robotic device. Mm -hmm. it, it's it still uses um, uh, not only the distal portion of the uh, robot, but also proximal portion of the robot as a part of the uh, mechanism. I'm interested in making this tetherless because now you're talking about much smaller, much uh, uh, devices. Uh, uh, swimming into the uh, maybe uh, bloodstream, a much uh, finer uh, airways. Uh, because it's tetherless, your opportunities are sort of uh, uh, limitless. Um, so I'm very excited about the advancing my uh, research to uh, tetherless. Uh, I shouldn't say snake robot, but more like a um, capsule in the future. I hope I'm, I'm going to be still a scientist by the time I apply this uh, to the patient. Well, thank you, Dr. Hatta, for joining us. It was great to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.